Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Kelsey Bowler and guest hosting with me today is Samantha Rank. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to discuss the so-called beauty gap, Planned Parenthood and Title X, the free online dating site OkCupid's questionable tweet, and share our interview with Heritage's Olivia Enos. And of course, we'll also crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week here on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those of you whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a five-star review on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, on to our first topic. Only a few weeks ago here on Problematic Women, we talked about the gender pay gap. Today, we're talking about the so-called beauty gap. According to a Telegraph article titled, The Beauty Gap, Are Good Looks a Curse for Women in the Boardroom?, retired British schoolteacher Clarissa Farr made some pretty controversial remarks about how women can sometimes be treated differently based on their looks, especially if they are beautiful. Specifically, Farr said, quote, There are certain women whose personal beauty makes their leadership acceptable, who wouldn't be able to hold the sway they do if they didn't look the way they do. Farr included Cheryl Sandberg of Facebook as an example of what she meant. Now, Farr wasn't necessarily encouraging this type of behavior and went on to include that, quote, we need to see more normal-looking female leaders such as Angela Merkel, who are judged by their looks and actions. Kelsey, what do you think? <laughs> Burn for Angela Merkel. <laughs> She's a great-looking leader. I mean, come on. This is really interesting. So this article was published in The Telegraph, and it cited a couple studies. You know, when thinking through the question, is there a beauty gap? Do you get treated differently based on your appearances? I think in certain industries, obviously, yes. You know, if you're a model, for example, you know, you need to look a certain way and and meet certain standards in that regard. And um, magazines and the feminist movement in many ways have been more than complicit in encouraging that and discouraging any type of body or appearance diversity. I welcome more diversity on the cover of magazines, but in in regular day-to-day lives, I I think this is a it's a topic that I I don't even think is like worth talking about that much because we shouldn't be focusing on each other's looks. We as humans are visual creatures and it's in our DNA to make judgments based on physical appearance. But hopefully most of us were raised well um, to know that those judgments should not be based on people's physical appearances. They should be based um, on on their intelligence, on, on, on their personality and so forth. But there were some studies that were cited here. <laughs> and it found that being a good looking woman in business can proved to be an obstacle in terms of winning trust, perceived honesty, and one's likelihood of getting the sack, 
<laughs> Not to be confused with bosses trying to get women in the sack, <laughs> like getting fired. According to these authors, the prejudice is rooted in sexual insecurity and evolutionary biology, whereby female colleagues will consider beautiful women a threat, while male ones will be suspicious that their physical attributes mean they are likely to be deceitful. So I guess it's it's possible that there is some truth to this, but I, I wonder how much of it has to do with natural beauty versus the different ways women carry themselves in the workplace. I am a strong believer of dress for the job that you want, not for the job that you have. And, um, you know, it's it's tempting to be like, <laughs> look, shouldn't matter at all in the workplace. But I think to an extent coming to work in professional clothing and looking put together is a reflection of you and, and, and your effort you're putting into this job. And, and it it is important. So, yeah, I, I would be curious to learn more about the way women are getting judged based on, I guess, how put together they are versus whether you are physically and sexually attracted to these women. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, too. And and I remember not to bring back my high school years, but I was on student government and, and every Thursday we would have a day called Dress for Success. And that was when we would dress professionally. We had a meeting to really go over everything that was going on in, in the student government. And that was the day that you had to dress for the part. So I think what you wear does matter and it can make a difference in how you're treated in the office and then also how people respect you. So if you come to the office looking put together with an attitude that's ready to work, I feel like the combination of the two would probably go further than whether or not you are physically attractive in terms of being thought of as beautiful or not. And I, I will say in that vein, uh, my first job was actually at Fox News in New York City. And I started out as a production assistant doing a bunch of different things. But my background and my interests were really in news journalism and production. And that's where I wanted to go. And I felt early on I got placed on the lifestyle section of Fox News because a couple of my male bosses looked at me and saw, oh, well, she she seems to like fitness, which I did. She seems to like fashion, which I did and still do. Um and and food and all this stuff she'd be a great person to have covering the lifestyle section and you know i i didn't have a problem with it because it was an opportunity to be publishing my own work on the front page of foxnews.com so i went with it but i also had to take a step back and ask myself, is this really what I want to be doing? And that's why I ultimately decided to move to Washington, D.C. and come work here at the Heritage Foundation because that wasn't what I wanted to build my career on. And so I think we need to acknowledge that, yes, people will make judgments and those judgments, whether they're about your physical appearance or about your interests, they happen for better or for worse. But at the end of the day, this is about personal responsibility, personal decision making. And I had to step up or step out and, yeah, really speak up for myself and, and be an advocate for what I wanted to do. And I think that trumps anything appearance wise that might affect anything related 
to your job. So that's my advice for anyone who does feel like they're getting judged at work, better or for worse. Just focus on what your goals are in your career and dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. And if it's time to get out of there, if you're not being valued based on your contributions to the workplace and, and for the skills and background that you are bringing, then find a different job. Exactly. All right. Well, let's move on to another major story this week. Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider, voluntarily removed itself from a massive government funding program called Title X after a federal appeals court upheld a rule instituted by the Department of Health and Human Services, which requires that all family planning providers financially separate abortion procedures from the rest of their work in order to receive those benefits under Title X. And it also prohibits groups from referring elsewhere for abortion. So long story short, if you are a health clinic, um, whether that's a regular health clinic or specifically a women's health clinic, if you are either providing or referring for abortions, you no longer can have access to Title X funding grants. So this move came to the relief of many conservatives who have long been advocating to defund Planned Parenthood. Um, Those calls in part referred to the taxpayer funding of the organization um, that they're receiving through Title X grants, uh, which provide funding for family planning services to an estimated 4 million people every year, the majority of whom are low-income women. But what conservatives might not have expected in this case was that Planned Parenthood would voluntarily defund themselves. Now, Planned Parenthood, of course, is spinning the story to say they were forced to deny, withdraw from Title X funding. But this is ultimately their choice. Um, They could have given up providing and referring for abortions. They chose not to. Context. Planned Parenthood currently receives about $60 million each year under Title X, which is less than 15% of its overall federal funding, most of which comes through Medicaid reimbursements. So this is not the end of taxpayer funding of abortions. They still get lots and lots of money through Medicaid reimbursements. Money is fungible. If Planned Parenthood says those reimbursements are for birth control, of course, they're all supporting the organization in providing uh, for abortions. So pro-abortion advocates, of course, are spreading misinformation about the implications of all this. Nay Rao, another pro-abortion group president, tweeted... If Planned Parenthood is forced to withdraw from Title X funding because of Trump, countless patients will not have access to basic services like contraception and pap smears. This will disproportionately affect low-income and rural women. The administration may not care, but we do. So this is really important to clarify. Tell all your friends. The Trump administration rule change did not cut a single penny from Title X funding. All it is doing instead is ensuring that rules that are already in place, which bar the federal funding of abortion procedures, are actually taking effect in practice. So, yes, the left is being hysterical about this, saying 
women, specifically low-income women, are no longer going to have access to birth control and you know all all the other few, very few services that Planned Parenthood actually provides. It's just not true. There's a lot of spin here. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think it just really exposes the true agenda of Planned Parenthood in that instead of abiding to these regulations and being able to still provide other services to low-income women, women who probably are uninsured and need Planned Parenthood, they would rather not take the funding. It's interesting to note that during the fiscal year of 2017 to 18, Planned Parenthood reported a record income of $1.67 billion with $244.8 million in excess revenue. They're clearly not strapped for cash, and despite their sky-is-falling rhetoric, they can apparently afford to choose abortion over participating in Title X. Right, and, you know, they're also swimming in private contributions. No coincidence under the Trump administration, the outrage that they have uh, manufactured. Those donations are up to $630.8 million in the most recent report, which is up $532.7 million from the previous year. And so Planned Parenthood is a, you know, it claims to be a nonprofit. They have a lot of money that they appear capable of filling this gap with. But yes, Skyo's falling rhetoric is the perfect way to describe what we're hearing from them. And, you know, if you're talking to your friends about this and they're buying into the left's talking points, I would just point out um, we've done some work on this in the Daily Signal. There are thousands of federally qualified health clinics all across the country that are accessible to every woman wherever she lives. And at these clinics, she can go there to get, um, you know, Anything that Planned Parenthood provides and so much more, except for abortions, of course, because these are federally qualified health clinics actually abide by the federal standard that, you know, you're not supposed to be uh, providing for or or funding abortions if you're accepting federal uh, federal money. And these clinics, you know, a lot of people in the medical profession make the case that they care for women better than Planned Parenthood because they actually um, take care of the whole woman and not just her body part, her one female, you know, body part. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, in a lot of ways, like women will be better off if they're not just going to Planned Parenthood for um, for a birth control prescription, but actually going to doctors who are able to consider and keep track of their whole health. So, you know, it might be a little short-term pain where a woman um, who was qualifies for Title X might need to go to a different clinic instead of Planned Parenthood. But ultimately, I really think she's going to be getting better care at the end of the day, the abortion issue aside. All right. Well, speaking of reproductive rights, last week, the free online dating site OkCupid tweeted, Girls don't want flowers and chocolates. Girls want someone who supports reproductive rights. Each word of the tweet was spaced out with the clapping emoji, and it was typed in all caps. So I think the message was very clear. The tweet sparked a lot of backlash and really did not look good for the dating site. 
Twitter user at political underscore Ellie replied, girls like their babies alive and not dismembered inside them. And at Thomas 93 Lila also wasn't too happy, tweeting in all caps, not all women are pro-abortion. Well, Samantha, not all men are pro-abortion either. And this decision comes with the assumption that men are totally on board with this agenda. It's very in your face for women, but I would imagine men would have a strange reaction to it as well, particularly with how far we've seen the left take abortion with laws like in New York State, where you can basically get one up into the point you are giving birth. The majority of Americans are not on board with this. And to make that assumption for a dating website seems like bad business, um, but also like it would lead to a lot of bad dates. (laughs) Like I would, you know, even though I, I... eat, sleep, and breathe politics. I don't want to talk about politics on a first date when I was going on first dates. <laughs> yeah, I just, <laughs> I just feel like I would not talk to someone that I was getting to know just right off the bat, ask them about anything political. I mean, that's a very, especially something like this. Abortion is a very sensitive topic that you would not address on a first date, especially, you know, you just met this person. But, of course, this was not the first time that this site got political. Speaking of Planned Parenthood, OKCupid also tweeted, quote, a screenshot of your Planned Parenthood donation is greater than nudes, end quote, back in June. So (laughs) that's disgusting. Yeah. So clearly it's just really I would I mean, not that I'm looking, but I would not use OKCupid to. I wonder if any <laughs> I wonder if any conservatives do. Um but like either way our country's in such a I would say painful um in a painful moment regarding mm-hmm. the rhetoric that's flying around and to bring this, you know, into the dating sphere. I mean, we talk about it being in sports, we talk about it in fashion. I mean, And now we have to decide who we're going to go on a first date with based on their political beliefs, I just think is really unhealthy. And it's, you know, we already live in a tribal society. It's only going to make that worse. Exactly. And I've seen couples that have been together for years that have completely different political views. But at the end of the day, they still love each other. So I feel like Creating this divisiveness from the start is just not healthy and is not really a great way to start a relationship. And of all issues, abortion, which is the most sensitive issue we could be talking about. Moving on. Up next, Samantha is going to be bringing us her sit-down interview with Olivia Enos, a policy analyst here at the Heritage Foundation, who's going to discuss all the massive protests that have been unfolding in Hong Kong and all the problematic women who have been involved. Stay tuned. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to give you an update on what I've been up to this semester. Over the past few weeks, I've been hosting the weekly podcast, Millennial Myths. Through a combination of on-the-street interviews from around Washington, D.C. and expert analysis, I've been on a mission to debunk some of the most popular political myths among millennials and Generation Z. 
The six-episode miniseries features topics like socialism, identity politics, and Medicare for All. Be sure to check it out on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to our interview. We are joined by Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst for the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. Olivia, thanks for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. The Hong Kong protests have been going on for a few months now and, for the most part, have been relatively peaceful. Just over the weekend, the protesters held their largest rally, with nearly 1.7 million people showing up. What originally caused these protests, and do you believe there is an end in sight? Well, the protests were sparked a couple of months ago when the Hong Kong Legislative Council and the current chief executive, Carrie Lam, introduced a bill called the extradition law. And that bill, if it had been passed, would have enabled China to essentially request at their whim that any individual from Hong Kong or Taiwan or anywhere else be able to be extradited back to mainland China. This would have posed an existential threat to freedom in Hong Kong had this bill actually passed. But because the protests gained so much momentum, this bill was actually tabled, although not fully withdrawn. So the reason why the protests continue is in part because the bill itself has not yet been withdrawn. And as the protests have continued, I think the protesters' demands have sort of deepened. Um, And a a huge part of this and the reason behind this is because I think that the introduction of the extradition law revealed that there is a cognitive dissonance between Hong Kongers and Hong Kong authorities, the government that's supposed to represent them. And I think that people feel like they truly cannot be heard. And I think that the extradition law itself sort of awoke feelings uh, and desires for reform inside of Hong Kong, a broader, deeper look at the overarching political system that ultimately revealed uh, this deeper desire for change inside of Hong Kong. And I think this is why you're continuing to see those protests. If the Hong Kong government is not able to close the feedback loop that's essentially been severed between Hong Kong citizens and their government, I don't see how there could be an end in sight with these protests. So it's going to definitely require the Hong Kong authorities to be clear and demonstrate that they actually are hearing the concerns that are being expressed by the average Hong Konger. So speaking of reforms, according to a USA Today article titled Hundreds of Thousands March for Democracy in Latest Hong Kong Protest Against China, The protesters are demanding a few things from the resignation of Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam to the formation of an independent commission to examine police brutality and government official behavior, just to name a few. How likely is it that these demands are met? I think that this is one of those situations where we're definitely going to have to wait and see. The Hong Kong protesters, in my opinion, achieved a pretty significant victory in just being able to get the extradition law tabled, even though that bill obviously has not yet fully been withdrawn. I think that the question remains as to what the protesters are going to want over the long term, because it's important to keep in mind when we're talking about Hong Kong that this is not a democracy. The way that the system is set up, it was established um, after the 1997 handover where Hong Kong was given back by the British. They had been under colonial rule for a number of years back to China. And there's this looming deadline of 2047 when Hong Kong's actually supposed to be 
fully restored back to China. But in this interim time period, they have something called the one country, two systems model that essentially allows Hong Kong to operate as a capitalist society while China continues to operate under, you know, pseudo-communist, pretty restrictive rules. So you have two systems. But I think that a lot of Hong Kongers are are really worried because they saw the writing on the wall with the extradition law that maybe they were going to have to sacrifice some really important freedoms uh, even before 2047. But I think that a lot of the people who will um, actually be alive during 2047 are finally coming of age. And they're starting to ask some of the more pressing questions about what they want their future to look like and what that governance system should look like over the long term. So I think that's for Hong Kongers to decide. But, you know, something that the U.S. is going to have to do is determine what does it see as its role over the long term when it comes to promoting freedom in Hong Kong? And how can U.S. policies best help to create conditions under which Hong Kongers will is is best able to be communicated and and subsequently achieved? What do you think of how China is acting throughout these protests? That is a very concerning question. And actually, just last week, um, I, along with uh, three other colleagues from Heritage, put out a paper that lays out the roadmap for what the U.S. should do in the event that China were to engage in some sort of military intervention in Hong Kong. We have heard some rumblings from Beijing that there might be some interest in intervention, even some unconfirmed reports that um, the Chinese military were doing some sort of exercises to tamp down on protesters. Um, All of these are concerning warning signs. And if something like that were to happen, there can be absolutely no perception of business as usual, no more trade negotiations with China, um, we should start suggesting sooner rather than later that any individuals or entities who are found to have architected some sort of military intervention will be held accountable through targeted sanctions. And we need to be messaging as clearly as possible that the U.S. is going to support the peaceful elements of the Hong Kong protesters and condemn every single time any sort of violence or hints of violence that are emanating from Beijing. So as you mentioned earlier, the protests originally began over a threat that people could be extradited to China. And you also talked about the one country, two system policy. How would changes to the extradition bill violate the one country, two systems policy? That's a really great question. I think that the main way that it would violate that is that essentially individuals like let's say, for example, American businessmen or American businesswomen who are operating in Hong Kong, they could literally be extradited at Beijing's whim. Or let's say somebody like Nathan Law or Joshua Wong. These are two uh, young gentlemen who have been a part of many protest movements, including the umbrella movement that took place in 2014, could, for example, be extradited to Beijing. And we know what happens to people when they get, to, when they get sent to Beijing. Oftentimes, they have to endure torture. Sometimes they don't ever come back. And so if you were to have an extradition law passed, you would essentially be saying that, well, um, you know, the rule of law that exists in Hong Kong that was established under the basic law at the 1997 handover is no longer prescient, is no longer timely. Um, They're not subject to being held accountable in Hong Kong's legal and judicial system. They would be held accountable in mainland China's legal and judicial system. 
that's a huge violation and an abrogation from the one country, two systems model. And it would really represent a deterioration in the freedoms, liberties, including economic freedom, which Hong Kong has ranked number one in Heritage's Index of Economic Freedom since the inaugural report. Um, so it, it would be would have been, and if it is passed in the future, would be a significant infringement on fundamental freedoms of Hong Kongers. How do you think these protests and generally what's been going on in Hong Kong reveals the harsh reality of communism? Well, I mean, all you have to do is look over at China and see how they treat their religious minorities, how the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, there's between 1 million to 3 million Uyghurs held in political re-education facilities today. All you have to do is look at Tibetan Buddhists and see how they're being, you know, incredibly, incredibly persecuted by Beijing authorities. You have to look at persecution of Christians and the underground church um, and the way in which pastors are dragged off um, and, and sent to prison in some cases never to be heard from again. And then you look to Hong Kong, where it looks like there were some really severe moves that would have curtailed freedom. And I think that this is why you see people from all different sectors of Hong Kong joining the protest. You see lawyers joining the protest. You see moms joining the protest. You see business people joining the protest and and youth and the elderly. Um, you see religious and non-religious people because they don't they look over at what's taking place in China and they want no part of it. They want to maintain their system that respects their freedoms and their liberties. That's what they want over the long term. And I think that, you know, communism's record speaks for itself. It doesn't result in liberty. It doesn't result in flourishing. And to the extent that we can, the U.S. needs to hold China accountable for its human rights violations. Speaking of the U.S. holding China accountable, should we be promoting the freedom of Hong Kong? And should the U.S. in general be playing a bigger role? The U.S. has long been a promoter of freedom all throughout Asia. And I think that our interactions with Hong Kong as this bastion of economic freedom um, is really emblematic of that. So, yes, the U.S. should be playing a front and center role in promoting freedom, fully recognizing that Hong Kongers have the right to define what their government system will look like over the long term. But I think that it is definitely, you know, at the highest levels of U.S. government, we should be seeing really strong statements coming directly from the president himself, from the vice president, from Secretary Pompeo. You've seen a lot of strong statements coming out of State Department on, in support of Hong Kongers who are peacefully protesting. But you honestly have seen silence and in some cases even urgings from the White House that silence be maintained. Um, in favor of an ongoing trade negotiation. This is a huge mistake. It is in U.S. interest over the long term to see a free Hong Kong and to see freedom flourishing in Asia. When we look at the great power politics rivalry between China and the U.S., um, it, it is at root about values. It's about different um, systems of government and how we believe we can best promote human freedom and flourishing. And that's not the China model it is definitely a model that embraces liberty that is going to hopefully win out at the end of the day. So do the ongoing protests have implications for trade negotiations between China and the United States? And if so, 
what type of implications? If China were to intervene militarily uh, to stop the Hong Kong protests, this would definitely have implications for trade negotiations. There could not be any perception of business as usual. We would need to discontinue trade negotiations at that particular point in time. And I think that there would have to be other implications beyond trade negotiations. There could not be normal relations um, in in many areas between the U.S. and China. I think that um, the long-term hope is that Beijing will not intervene militarily, that they will recognize that it is in their long-term interest to have an economically flourishing and a politically free Hong Kong. But I think that it remains to be seen what Beijing decides to do. But I think we have to be messaging now at the highest levels of U.S. government that there will be consequences to China over the long term if they do things that would severely hamper the freedoms of Hong Kongers. What role have women played in these protests? And are there any individuals who have really stood out in the crowd? Yeah, so, I mean, I think you see just a a diverse array of actors who have come out for the protests, um, women definitely being among them. Um, I think that if there's anyone who stands out, it was definitely um, the woman who was a nurse who had her eye shot out with the rubber bullet. Um, And I believe there's some chance maybe she's going to lose her eye, but she became essentially this like picture of what it looks like to protest in Hong Kong and to advocate for freedom in a peaceful manner. And so I think that, you know, she has definitely stood out in a lot of ways. Of course, you also have Carrie Lam, who is the chief executive there, who, you know, has been responding to all of the questions of the protesters and, um, you know, her role in the Hong Kong government as the, you know, head of Hong Kong um, is also an interesting one to observe. She's, you know, sort of in an unenviable position right now. But I think it's fascinating. And, you know, the fact that they do have a woman as president is definitely representative of the of the inclusivity of Hong Kong society. And it demonstrates that, you know, anybody can be president, male or female, uh, in, in Hong Kong. And it's It's funny because, you know, also Taiwan has a female president as well. So it's interesting to see these female leaders sort of cropping out up throughout Asia. What do you think is the most important piece of information Americans, especially conservatives, should know about Hong Kong? Well, I think the most important thing is that truly Hong Kong is remarkable in nature. It has maintained this sort of freedom-loving, liberty-loving environment for quite some time in the midst of a region that does not embrace freedom. I mean, if you look around its neighborhood, you've got China, you've got North Korea. These are not places that embrace, uh, you know, promotion and protection of human rights, that embrace fundamental freedoms. And I think that that comes in many different forms, political freedom, economic freedom, business freedom. Uh, Hong Kong remains one of the wealthiest places in the world. Um, And it really has been this bright spot in Asia. Hopefully it will remain that way over the long term.
So, just recently, the star of the Disney's live-action Mulan, Leo Ife, came out in support of the Hong Kong police. She reposted the message, quote, I also support Hong Kong police. You can beat me up now. Which also included, quote, what a shame for Hong Kong. In response, a Twitter trend, hashtag Boycott Mulan, began circulating. Why are the actress's comments concerning, and are they at all surprising? Well, I think, you know, especially the latter portion of her comments, uh, you know, how distressing for Hong Kong that they are engaging in these protests is definitely a concerning one. I mean, she seems to be calling into question the legitimacy of the protests. And the reality is, is that when you have a free political system, you're going to have voices that express their dissent in all different forms. And so I think that, you know, there are a lot of people who are very concerned about her stance on this particular issue. My understanding is that she is uh, Chinese-American, so she is an American citizen, and I think there was some concern about her relative support for China also that was sort of underpinning that. Um, But I think, you know, overall, the Hong Kong protests, particularly the peaceful elements of it, they need to be supported, and they need to be supported by various public figures. And I think by and large, they really have garnered a lot of respect from the international community. Well, speaking of problematic women, we are going to end this week's show by crowning the problematic woman of the week. This week, the honor goes to a young woman who was hit in the eye during a Hong Kong protest. Olivia, you had mentioned her earlier. And according to a Business Insider Malaysia article, this woman has become the new symbol of Hong Kong protests, by becoming an example of police brutality. The woman was apparently a volunteer medic and was allegedly hit in the eye with a beanbag round that police had been using and firing into the crowds. The woman's eye was severely damaged, in addition to several of her facial bones being broken. Since the incident, hashtag I4HK has been gaining some momentum, as have the hashtags, hashtag democracy for Hong Kong and hashtag free from fear. People have also been taking selfies covering their right eye, the eye that was injured in this horrible event. As of this morning, there was a video circulating on Twitter from user at Toman Medell of protesters covering their eyes with their heads down in honor of this young woman. I suggest you check it out. It's a very moving video. Olivia, what do you think of this situation? Do you think it will have any implications on future protests or police behavior? I think that it's possible that it will have an implication in the future. I think that, you know, the Hong Kong authorities are in a really tough position. The special forces themselves are having to deal with protests that are breaking out in all different areas all throughout the city. And so it's definitely a complicated situation. They need to refrain from engaging in practices that would harm people like this young woman. And I think that it's amazing that there has been this rallying cry and this ripple effect throughout social media where people keep covering their eye. Like I've, I've seen people in my own Facebook news feed um, who have been, you know, posting pictures with their one eye covered and it's really taken off. It's amazing how, you know, the suffering of one person can really just, kind of bring everybody together in support for her, especially given that she was a medic um, helping and trying to assist and make sure that everyone everyone was okay in the midst of, you know, what are very eventful protests. So 
yeah, definitely something to watch for sure. But I think it'll probably catch on and continue to gain momentum. Yes, it's certainly one of those situations that really leaves a lasting impression. And I think one that will continue to gain international attention and really make people watch Hong Kong a little bit closer in the weeks moving forward. Olivia, thank you so much for joining me on Problematic Women this week. We will be sure to keep our audience updated on any new developments in Hong Kong. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thank you guys for that. That just about wraps up our show. But before we leave, I want to tell you about one more podcast that I have been loving these days. So each week, the Independent Women's Forum She Thinks podcast brings you fresh, relevant content in a fun way without the politically correct nonsense. On She Thinks, substance and style supersede political spin. Led by the charismatic host Beverly Hallberg, she Thinks podcast features some of the country's top women, conservative leaders, and independent thinkers. Independent Women's Forum is known for championing women's rights to be heard and respected without the crutch of the female victimhood narrative espoused by the mainstream media, special interests, and Hollywood elite. Check out what all the buzz is about by subscribing to the She Thinks podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit IWF.org. And on that note, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives could use your support in the podcasting world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or better yet, just tell a friend. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Associate producer, Samantha Rank. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton. 